Alright, uh, we've got three readings to do today. Uh, two from Genesis and then one from 1 Corinthians. Um, the first one is, it comes up, uh, Genesis 25, verse 19 to 34. This is the accounts of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why I was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. The second reading is uh, Genesis 27, 1 to 29. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. Here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like. Bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left to the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I might give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. 
Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the son of your mother's bow, mothers bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. The final reading is 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It's the word of the Lord. There are a lot of tall people at Inner West. Thanks, James, for reading for us. Now, I wonder what you think when we get to Genesis 25 and 27, when we get to that story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, last week, uh, Sam very helpfully expanded on and, and guided us through the Abraham and Isaac narrative and looking at that part of, of this family and, and just how God, God's promises are being worked out through that family, even though it looks like, you know, Abraham's about to sacrifice his son Isaac and, and how, how is this ever going to work out? And so then you get to, to um, Isaac having kids of his own and we see in this, at this point we have a, actually another childless narrative, much the same as, um, Ab- as Abraham. You have this, this point at which they, the narrator says um, that um, Isaac was 40 years old when he married and Isaac prayed to the Lord on the behalf of his wife because she was childless. And so we have God's promise being enacted there. And this is a, a, is a, one of those signs that the, the narrative, the, the story that's to come, uh, will be a significant one in the book of Genesis. So let, as we pick up from um, this point, Isaac gets short shrift. He gets only a few lines about him. And we move on to Jacob and Esau. So let me pray as we begin, uh, because I think this this narrative is one that we often focus on one as, on only one aspect of. So let me pray. Father God, I, I pray that you would be uh, speaking to us this morning, that you would be opening your word uh, to our hearts, uh, that you would be revealing uh, how your your purpose and your promises to us uh, through uh, your word. Uh, Please speak through me this morning as we delve into what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So promises. We saw in Abraham and Isaac the promise that is is coming about, uh, the promises to Abraham are starting to come about. Here too we see the promise going from one child to two children. This impossible becoming possible with with God. But it seems to be rather slow. I'll make you into a great nation, one child. There'll be many, many people, more than you can count the stars in the sky. Isaac has two children. God's promises are working fairly slowly at this point. And yet, as we read through, we get, the same, we get another promise in here. Two, two nations are in your womb, not just, just one nation, but two nations are in your womb now. These promises seem to be expanding 
and growing. And yet the narrator wants to keep us really tightly focused on what's happening to just a small part of this family. Because it's this tension that we see over and over again in the book of Genesis. God has his promises that are being worked out, that are being expanded, they're, being, they're growing. And yet people, humans, the family that God has chosen are so fallible. They're meddling. They, they, they want to do things their own way. Sin creeps in. And we struggle to, to figure out how, is they, how are these things going to be reconciled? How are they going to be put back together? And so Jacob and Esau, two nations in Rebecca's womb. Now, I think sometimes we get to Jacob and Esau and we go, oh, yeah, so Jacob and Esau, there's the younger, the, the younger son and the older son, and it's, it's one of these narratives that, that our culture uses often. And when, when, I, was, when I was growing up and, and thinking about Jacob and Esau, it was this uh, brotherly love that came to mind. Faramir and Boromir of Lord of the Rings. You know, you have one who is flawed, deeply flawed, seeking after the ring, and one who is just noble at heart. He, he lets the hobbits go. Uh, he, he sends them off uh, with his blessing. Except that's not quite what Jacob and Esau does, to, and that's not what they, who they represent. And, and indeed, in this adaptation of it, Peter Jackson re recognised something. Go back. Um, Peter Jackson recognises something. Faramir isn't the noble one who just you know, does, does what, um, what uh, is right and sends the hobbits on. Actually, far more what Jacob and Esau represent is this other brotherly um, rivalry. That wonderful high culture mark of our age, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Thor and Loki. Now, that represents Jacob and Esau, probably because uh, Stan Lee, who came up with these characters, actually repeats the Bible's narrative throughout the comics and throughout, uh, and they make, make its way into the movies. And it's, you know, it's pretty obvious in the casting, isn't it? Esau is described as a man with, with lots of hair and, and swarthy and a man of the fields. And Jacob is described as the one with smooth skin, the one who um, spends a lot of time with his mother. Um, th this, is, this is what our culture sees Jacob and Esau as. But at the same time, in, in our adaptations of this, in our imagining of it, our reimagining of this Jacob and Esau narrative, we expect that even though Loki is mischievous and, and, and bad in many ways, he's not really that bad. He's just a bit naughty. He's just being a bit mischievous. There's still some good left in him, isn't there? Somewhere? But as I think, as we go into the, the um, Jacob and Esau narrative, it blows apart uh, what our cultural understandings of Jacob and Esau Esau are. Indeed, growing up, I, I kind of, you know, you, re, you read through it in Sunday school and you get this feeling that Jacob, Jacob's the hero of this story. You know, he gets the blessing, he's, he manages to, to trick his dad, and that's an, that's an amazing thing. No, it's not. That's not good at all. And so let's have a look at 
the Jacob and Esau narrative afresh. Let's cast Thor and Loki out of our minds and return to the, to the biblical narrative uh, that's in front of us. So we're going to look at three separate things uh, in this. Uh, three areas where I think we, as people, uh, we read in our own uh, idols, our own heart's desires into the story. Um, but actually the story undercuts them for us. So we're going to look at the temptation of temporality. You know, preaching, you've got to have everything alliterated. Um, the temptation of temporality, the temptation of trickery, and given that it's um, Halloween this week, trick or treat. So let's get started. We have in Genesis 25 the, the birth of Jacob and Esau, which we're going to come back to again in a little bit. But I want to have a look, quick look at the narrative where Esau comes stumbling in from the field. So just imagine it for me, if you will. Genesis 25, 29. Jacob's sitting there by the campfire. A little pot of stew going, slow, slow cooking some lentils. Esau comes back in from the fields. He's hungry. He says to Jacob, oh, Quick, let me have some of that stew you have. I'm famished. And quick thinking Jacob goes, hmm, my older brother's famished. I wonder what he'll do for some food. And so he concocts the most outrageous bargain that he can. I'll give you sustenance for the next day in return for your sustenance, effectively, your birthright, for the rest of your life. Does that sound like a fair trade to anyone? It's like someone saying, "Here, you can have either the the keys to the Mars bar or to the to the Mars company, or I'll give you a little pocket-sized Mars bar. Which one would you prefer?" But Esau, Esau's one of those uh, more impetuous guys. Think, you know. Accurately think of Thor at the start of the original Thor movie. He's the one who's in there going, yes, of course, that sounds like a great trade. I'll trade all of that future stuff for food right now. It's a bit crazy, isn't it? I don't think Esau is about to keel over dead from starvation at this point. He's not going to, you know, he's hungry for sure, but he's not going to just fall over and... and cark it if, if he doesn't get a bowl of food. But in this ridiculous trade, Esau is, is persuaded to, re to resolve that temporary problem he has, that short-term problem he has, with a solution that has completely permanent consequences. It's much the same as a caricature of one who would uh, give away their home uh, in order to to get a, a short-term drug fix, really. It's something that I think we all feel, though. That even though we 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 go, this is just, this is crazy. Who would ever do that? I think sometimes we feel this more than we we would like to admit. Indeed, our marketing, the the entire 
world of marketing plays on this. Why, why worry about, about that future uh, and, and waiting for that in the future when you can have it now? It's perhaps what you might call the golem instinct. I want it now. I need it. I need it immediately. And so often we trade our future, the future that is set out for us, the future that we can even see clearly for what we, need, what we feel like we need now, or more realistically, what we want now. I think this is one of the, the, the great idols of our hearts, the great struggles that we have uh, both uh, as Christians and, and as, as a broader society. Um, we're very good at prioritizing what we want immediately in, uh, as opposed to what we can see is in store for us. Esau just exudes that in spades. And that craving for the, for the sensual, the temporal, the immediate, the pleasurable right now often actually blinds us from the bigger picture, from the greater blessings, from the greater things that God has in store. But Jacob, Jacob isn't uh, immune to this either. It's not like he's saying, oh, I've got this great uh, long-term picture in mind. Uh, if I can manage to get my brother to trade his birthright, therefore uh, things will go well for me in the future. I think he's being just as opportunistic about this as Esau is. Esau is opportunistic in wanting to get that little bit of food right now. But Jacob's opportunistic in going, hey, here's an opportunity that I can leverage, that I can tweak to my own advantage. Ultimately, that's, I think, one of the great idols of our hearts. And the Jacob and Esau narrative rips it right open. And we'll return to some of the solutions to that a bit later. Secondly, though, the trickery. Jacob, Jacob's name, if you read the footnotes in, in most Bibles, it will explain for you that in Hebrew, uh, Jacob's name literally means the deceiver. It means the one who is a trickster, the one who uh, wants, who who sets things out in a different way than that what they are ordered, in a really long literal sense of the of the Hebrew name. But is he the only trickster in this story? I think some, sometimes we we go, oh, this is this is a, a a brotherly love thing, you know, just two two people back and forth. But actually, this is a familial thing. This isn't just uh, Jacob and Esau. It's Jacob and Esau and Rebecca. And as we'll soon, soon see, Isaac as well. So let's rewind to that promise given to, to Rebecca. Rebecca's lying there pregnant. I haven't had that experience, but I have um, my wife, we have two kids. I have heard in the middle of the night her complaining about um, one child uh, bouncing up and down in, in, a, in, in her tummy. Uh, I can only imagine what two would be like. And so Rebecca naturally cries out to, to the Lord. Why is this happening to me? What's, what, literally, what's going on? And so she inquires of the Lord. The Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And so even before Jacob and Esau are born, she has this rattling around in her, in her, in her mind. Fast forward a few years uh, to Genesis 27. Fast forward uh, a little bit on, and we see what the outcome of having this prophecy of, of this revelation from God rattling around in her brain, has, how it works out. I think the, the elaborate plot and that, and that sense of rising tension uh, is just self-evident in here. But it's not just Jacob who goes in. It's Jacob at the instigation of Rebekah. Rebekah's the, the one standing behind Jacob, supplying him with the food, the clothes, what to say, the assurance that, that it will go, go well. And so Jacob creeps in to his father's tent, gives him some tasty food, wet, puts on goat skins, and deceives his father. But the origin of this trickery lies in the whole family, in, with Rebecca as well. Now, I think we've seen this before haven't we? We didn't look at it uh, directly when we looked at, um, at Genesis uh, 12 through 17, the Abrahamic promises. But in there, God promises to Abraham, you'll have a, you'll have a son. And so what does Abraham do? He talks to his wife and she goes, I'm, I'm barren. Well, let's try and enact this another way. Let's do this our own way. We will take things into, matters into our own hands and we will um, you, you can sleep with Hagar and we'll um, get, get a son that way. So to here, Rebecca goes, ah, this prophecy that, that I've had that the younger will serve the older, uh, so the older will serve the younger, needs to be fulfilled. I don't see how it's going to be fulfilled uh, if, um, if Esau is blessed by uh, Isaac, so I'd better take things into my own hands. We need to step in and do God, God's work for it, for him, is what, effectively what she's saying. Now, I think this is an, uh, the second great temptation for us, that when we don't see what God is doing, when, when often because, it's, because we're blinded by the immediate, we don't see how God's plans are working out, we step in and we go, well, actually, I think that I can do this in this way in order to enact God's plans for him. We try and do things our own way, how we think God should do it, rather than letting him do it himself. And this is a temptation I, th I think we find, as, as people in general, we find incredibly tempting. That the ends justify the means. It's the, the teleological ethic of our age, that, that uh, all of our solutions need to come by justifying the means that we do it by the end goal that we have. I think perhaps uh, one of the, the, the most in interesting ways that we've seen this actually at uh, happening is through um, self-driving cars, the bizarre 
um, access into our ethic. Is it right for a self-driving car to kill its owner in order to not kill the 10 pedestrians crossing the road? Actually, the programmers of the self-driving car say yes. The, the ends justify the means. The end of saving 10 lives justifies the means of killing one. This is the ethic that our world works on often. At the risk of getting political, the end of stopping people smuggling justifies the means of putting people in detention in places where effectively they're going to die instead. The end justifies the means. We try and do things ourselves in and of our own effort because the end that we see justifies the means. But I think just as it, we, we often see how it backfires um, in, in our current world, in politics, in, in various ethical circumstances, it backfires here too. We didn't read on um, in Genesis 27 to see... Uh, what the outcome of this of this deception is, but it, it, it's almost poetic that as soon as uh, after J uh, in verse thirty, after Isaac finishes blessing him, almost as soon as Jacob leaves his father's presence, his brother Esau comes in from hunting, and the game is up. And ultimately, what happens is Jacob has to leave; he has to run away. It backfires. Uh, almost spectacularly for, for Jacob and Rebecca. One brother now wants to kill the other. And so too, I think it backfires for us quite often. So the third idol then. What is the outcome of trickery? Is it tricking or is it treating? Is it deception or is it promise? Isaac... Isaac, that, who gets such short shrift compared to his, uh, the rest of his family, he only, he only gets a few short chapters uh, talking about what he does. Isaac here is tricked, absolutely. He's deceived by his, his wife, his son. But is, is he just a passive uh, actor? Is he just a passive person in this? As we read through uh, chapter 27, Isaac, we, we find out he's old. His eyes are weak and he can no longer see. So he calls for his son and initiates the blessing uh, process. But he also initiates this entire deception. Because Isaac, for all of the, the amount that he doesn't trust his own, he, he, that he, he doesn't trust his children here, he then completely ignores his own senses. He ignores the assessment of Jacob's voice. And he, he proceeds to bless uh, to bless Jacob, even though he suspects it's not Esau. He's blind physically, yes. But I think internally he's also blind to the reality of the family that has grown up around him. He's blind to the relationships in his family. I, 
I've only been a, a parent for uh, a few years now, but I can tell when when my kids aren't getting along. Given the the level of animosity that seems to be coming through from uh, both Genesis twenty five and twenty seven, I w- it would be incredibly surprising that Isaac has no idea as to you know the relationship between uh, Jacob and Esau. Isaac here, I think, is is somewhat willfully blind to the relationships that are happening. And so he gives his blessing. But two, I think often we blind ourselves to the reality around us. It reveals something of our human heart that we'd prefer to think that things are going well for us, that things are going well for the, the family or the circumstances we're in, uh, that things are going well for the plans that God has made. And so we blind ourselves uh, to the reality around us. We, we need to look no further than, um, than the bullying that often happens in, in the church, the, the sexual abuse scandals that we, as the church of willfully, as a family of God, have willfully blinded ourselves to the things that are happening in our own family because we want to see God's promises worked out in the way that we think they should be worked out. So after that dismal assessment of humanity uh, given through Jacob, Esau, Isaac, and Rebekah, what then is the vision that Genesis gives us? Ultimately, the blessing is given to Jacob. The the prophecy to Rebekah is fulfilled. It's not as neat and cut, dry, cut and dried as she thinks it probably would, will be worked, worked out. And indeed, Esau is given a, corollary, uh, a secondary blessing um, and there's animosity within that blessing. You'll live by the sword and you'll serve your brother, it says in verse 40. Uh, when you grow restless, you'll throw the, his yoke off from your neck. But there is a great blessing that is given, nevertheless. Rich land, much progeny, blessings and curses. The same blessings to Abraham are then given to Jacob. But in God's economy, in God's working through Genesis, we see this deception turned in to promise. That even though there is this great deception given and people and God's people, the the family he has chosen, seek to repeatedly mess it up over and over again. God not only blesses, but blesses incomparably despite that. Indeed, as the, the tricks, the deceptions that happen they become, in God's economy, treats, blessings, promises. As Joseph ends up reflecting at the end of the book, if we fast forward a bit, what you, his brothers, intended for evil, God used for good. That's the pattern of Genesis over and over again. Jacob tricking Esau. Jacob and Rebekah tricking Isaac. Isaac being completely blind probably willfully to his own family, 
all of that sin, all of that failure, all of the idols of the human heart, the brokenness is used for good. And I think actually we recognize somewhere in our hearts that we're all the better for it. That our best laid plans spectacularly backfire so often. Our attempts at enacting God's promises are so tainted by our own heart's desires, our own broken heart's desires, that it's so much better that God does it in and of his own strength and often despite our efforts. Now, it's worth saying that this isn't a condemnation on uh, on God's people, on, on, on people in general doing things. Uh, God, uh, I believe, wants us to, to be active participants in his mission, in his work. Uh, but as, as Paul writes in Romans, and Romans 9, that ultimately it is not by uh, the work, but it is by God's grace. So Romans uh, 9, as indeed as, as Paul remembers what ha, um, has happened to Jacob and Esau, he says, uh, not, only, not, not only by works, but by him who calls, she, she was told, the older will serve the younger. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or, or effort, but on God's mercy. We are participants in God's vision, in God's mission. But we're not to take it into our own hands. It is still his work to be done. And so we have actually have a greater vision at hand, which isn't reliant on our own efforts or on temporal fickleness, as tempting as that may be, on our own guile and deception, on our own drive, on our own desires. But it's dependent on one who gives promises, but also one who has enacted all of those promises. Because ultimately we see all of this um, through the cross. That great reversal of the deception and deceit of the justice system in putting one man to death for the the good of the many, as uh, the high priest Caiaphas says in in John John 11, it's better that one man should die than many, so that many shall live. He didn't know what he was speaking of. But ultimately, we do. That deception of the justice system is worked out for our justice with God. The wonderful reversal it is of human efforts to God's purposes. And Paul sums it up in that reading from 1 Corinthians. That through the... um, The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That great reversal that we have, the foolishness of human wisdom, foolishness of our own efforts, is subverted. It's redirected. It's reversed in God's economy. 
And so it is this new family, this family that we baptized uh, Ari into this morning, that, that is still flawed now. But it, that a family that rests on God's promises, and, but not only God's promises, but God's working out of those promises in Jesus. We have a greater vision to replace the vision of our hearts. We have the great vision of the reversal of Jesus' uh, justice, of the reversal of our justice on Jesus. And that is a fulfillment of, the, of all of the promises of God. And it, it comes despite and actually because of failed human efforts to enact it. We have this picture of a great promise, a wonderful promise, which is enacted in a new way with a new family. It is enacted with a family of God in us. And so together, we, as the body of Christ, as those who have been so greatly blessed and, and that blessing has been worked out, Despite our idols, despite our heart's desires, we have a greater vision. We have a greater vision which makes our human, human wisdom seem foolish. And it is that family that we can rest in. That family that changes our assessment of who Jacob and Esau are. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you have given us a greater vision of the reversal of human effort, that despite all of our uh, meddling, all of our efforts, all of our desires, uh, to, uh, which so often end up subverting your will, uh, that you still work it out in Christ, that you still... Uh, bless so greatly, you still work out your promises in Christ. I pray that you would help us to rest in that, to look towards that vision of Christ as the enactment, as the fulfillment of those promises, that we may see you in your glory, that we may together as your family be bound in the promises of God. Amen.